Our scripture reading today is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful that you are our chief shepherd, uh, that we are never left without a pastor. We're never left without a perfect pastor. Um, Father, we are thankful for the Holy Spirit um, that is not just in me and in Adam and in deacons or leaders or mature believers, but the Holy Spirit, which resides in all of us. We are all the temple of God. Um, but we acknowledge uh, from your word and just from common sense that uh, leadership is good, that people flourish under humble leadership. And so we ask that you would grant our church faithful, humble leadership, that you would um, supernaturally make that so in me and in my life, in Adam's life, uh, in deacons. I pray for more elders and more deacons. Um, I pray for the elders and deacons and leaders spread throughout this city um, in a season when there have been so many scandals, so many crises, uh, so many embarrassments for the body of Christ. Um, would you raise up a generation of faithful pastors uh, who lead your church well? Um, and would there be unity amongst all churches in San Francisco uh, for your glory and for the good of the neighbors that we love so dearly? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every year, Gallup does an honesty and ethics survey uh, around various professions. And so they've been doing it at least since 1980 and asking about everyone from nurses to lawyers to elementary school teachers to car salesmen. And this is the graph for clergy. Um, it's not pretty. Uh, from 1980 to 2020, it has been a fairly steady decline. I don't know what happened in 1985 and 2000 to have that like sharp, <laughs> the sharp uh, incline, but it didn't last. Um, and in case I thought maybe we deserved a bounce in 2021, I looked for the updated information and uh, we dropped another three points to 36%. Um, that's the lowest ever um, number of people who say that clergy should be either very trustworthy or are, are, are trustworthy. Um, they're either average or lower. Um, now, this is a national survey, and so if we try to map that onto the Bay Area, it's probably not going to get any better. Um, there's no regional data available. I couldn't find any way to break it down by region. But um, if the national average is 36%, what might San Francisco be? And we can pull out groups. They had divided other groups um, based on 
uh, the city's uh, representation. So for people who identify as liberal versus conservative and moderate, 27% consider pastors more trustworthy. 18%, however, think clergy are low or very low in trust. Uh, that's almost one in five liberals who immediately think that I'm dishonest upon hearing my profession. <laughs> um, for people aged 18 to 34, so if we think about youth and age, um, just 22%, so an even lower amount of people tend to trust pastors, and 21% believe pastors should not be trusted. Um, that's more than one in five who begin conversations with me from a place of mistrust. Uh, this is obviously a problem for me personally. Uh, thankfully, uh, I'm still looked at more favorably than politicians and reporters, which is great. Uh, in a few years, though, it'll be like me, Mitch McConnell, and the mainstream media just like having drinks together at the bottom of the barrel, right? <laughs> um, so this is a small problem for my credibility, but more importantly, this is a significant problem for the church's credibility, uh, in San Francisco particularly. Uh, the gospel can be hard to accept already on its own, even if it's your grandma who's telling you that it's true. Um, but these kinds of surveys indicate that people not only question beliefs, they question motives for believing. Uh, they question intentions. Uh, why all the mistrust? It reminds me of the warning we've heard again and again in First Peter against um, suffering for sin, First Peter 4, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so why is the church suffering? Um, sadly, much of the American church's suffering today is not from righteous stands for Christ, uh, but from her complicity with murder, theft, evildoing, and meddling. That's why the church is suffering a crisis of credibility. By now, everyone has seen and heard so many stories of pastors in particular abusing their positions, abusing women, abusing children, sometimes in the name of Christ. And those stories are heartbreaking. They are infuriating. And what do we do when we read these stories? Um, the, the Southern Baptist Convention just came out with a report a few weeks ago that was awful, covered years of abuse. Um, and when we first read these stories, we should remember Jesus, the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, he says, if anyone causes, he had children around him, and he said, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so we should picture Jesus when we read these stories, normally so kind and gracious and compassionate, saying to these abusers and people who cover up abuse that it would be better for them to drown in the sea than to face what they will face at the return of Christ. Justice is coming. No evil will go unpunished, especially evil that's done in the name of Jesus. There is hardly anything more infuriating and upsetting than that. For now, though, for us, these stories create an extra hurdle that we have to clear as a church in order to bear witness to Christ. It's almost like a penalty in football where it just moves us further and further away from the goal, 
right? We're just getting farther and farther away from the opportunity to gain a real hearing for the gospel of Christ. Um, in the past few decades, the church's credibility has been set back. And at a, at a lunch recently, Andy Crouch um, was with a group of pastors um, in the city, and he said that the most important objective for the church over the next 80 years is rebuilding trust, that that is actually the main thing that we need to focus on, not growth, not relevance, not anything like that, but rebuilding trust. That's what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be aiming for. And the fact is that most people who live in San Francisco are not Christians, and they aren't really neutral about it either. Uh, we live in what Aaron Wren calls a negative world. And so for centuries, uh, being a Christian in the West was a positive thing. Sort of it, it, it gained you a social cultural benefit, and that's, a po that's the positive world. And then for the past three to four decades, we lived in a neutral world where it wasn't um, particularly positive, but it wasn't negative either. Like you, it was just a fact that you could share right? Um, but increasingly, in particular places, in cities like San Francisco and New York City and others, being a Christian is actually a net negative that, we have, that we're operating from. And so how do we overcome this? How will our churches, and this church in particular, advance the gospel in a negative world? Well, given all the church scandals, given all the crises from the past 20 years, one of the most important ways for our church to operate in such a world is by choosing trustworthy pastors. That is of the utmost importance. And maybe that's why churches have lost trust over the past 40 to 50 years, because we have opted instead for pastors who were better at other things right? We've chosen leaders for growth. We've chosen leaders who build clout, for raising money, for meeting spiritual needs. Uh, churches have chosen leaders who are relevant, uh, who are right theologically, politically, culturally correct. And maybe they were right, but they weren't good. And pastors should be both right and good. Of course, it's not that these churches didn't want their leaders to be trustworthy, but that has not always been the most important thing. Um, but in this season, and in this city in particular, trustworthiness is the most important thing. More important than speaking ability, leadership acumen, dynamic personalities. Those things are great, but they aren't all important. Churches must choose leaders who are deeply trustworthy. And this really has always been the case. It has always been most important. The church is presumptuous, really, when it thinks um, that trust is not most important. Sort of they're, they're um, banking on privilege um, when they hire for other reasons. Um, but trust is most important because trust is so closely tied to faith, right? That's what faith is. Faith is trust. And it's hard to trust in God when experience teaches you to mistrust pastors who claim to speak for God. Right? It's hard to maintain faith when your faith is constantly being challenged by wicked pastors. And so in order for people to believe that God is trustworthy, pastors must also be trustworthy. When choosing a pastor, when appointing a pastor, we need to ask ourselves, do I trust him? 
Uh, there have been lots of hand-wringing lately about how Christians live in a negative world. So that Aaron Wren article like, came out a couple months ago with the negative, positive, neutral uh, scheme, and people have been talking about it and arguing about it um, and fretting about it. But if you think about it, this is, that is the world of the New Testament, right? Um, the Apostle Peter was writing to folks for whom being Christian was a net negative socially, culturally, economically. They were not a trusted group of people. And so how do you choose leaders in that setting? Well, 1 Peter 5 helps us. It directs us and tells us what pastors to choose and what pastors should do. And so read again, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So I'd like to just like walk through the, this passage um, in a very practical way. What are the kinds of pastors that build trust um, inside a community and, and outside? Well, first, to build trust, we should choose a pastor who preaches the gospel of Christ. Uh, that's what he begins, verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so Peter expected the elders to which he was writing to do the same things that he did, um, which included, first and foremost, bearing witness to the sufferings of Christ. You can trust a pastor when he is trusting Christ. That's what makes him sturdy. Insofar as your pastor trusts in anything else, he is, no, he is not trustworthy. In fact, following the example of Paul, there might be times when a pastor should actually downplay his gifts in order to highlight the power of Christ, which is pretty shocking for us. It's pretty shocking for me. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1, when he talks to the Corinthians who were questioning him, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If we take Paul at his word, this is a wild strategy, right? No one doubts Paul's preaching ability, like his ability to communicate his rhetorical skill. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he intentionally pastored from weakness and fear and much trembling, not with lofty words. So he set aside his rhetorical skill so that the power of God would be displayed. He never wanted people's trust in him to be anything other than trust in the gospel. A trustworthy pastor bears witness to the suffering of Christ, to the weakness of Christ. Um, this is a also important, a pastor's witness, witness must not only be about Christ's suffering. So 1 Peter 5, pastors must preach glory too. A pastor must consistently point to the church's future hope in Jesus. And so he taught 1 Peter 5, 1, he calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 
This week in particular, I was challenged by the buoyancy of Peter's letter. Um, There is a glory that radiates from the letter. Um, and, And the fact is that suffering without glory is a partial gospel. Um, It's not the whole story, right? Hurt without hope is incomplete. And so as a pastor, I found myself asking, and you should ask of me, do I encourage our church towards hope and joy like Peter encourages this church towards hope and joy? Do I embody hope and joy through hardship, through weakness? I am called to be a fellow witness to both Christ's suffering and Christ's future glory. We should choose pastors who preach Christ crucified and risen, a Christ who died but is now alive and coming again soon, who experiences joy and hope and peace on a regular basis. Uh, This is not just about a pastor's preaching and teaching. Um, That's certainly a big part of a pastor's leadership, but not the whole thing. Uh, Bearing witness to the sufferings and glories of Christ will encompass one's entire life. It's about how you live as much as what you preach, and that makes a special sense from the book of 1 Peter, right? Throughout the letter, we've seen how the apostle regularly connects Christian suffering with the sufferings of Christ, uh, so that we bear witness to Christ's suffering with our own suffering. And if that's true for the whole church, it certainly should be true for the, past, for the pastors. Uh, trustworthy pastors are willing to obey God even when it hurts. They love others sacrificially with their time, energy, resources, reputation. They sacrifice sleep, peace, stability, financial opportunity. And this is all part of bearing witness to the sufferings of Christ and to his coming glory. It builds trust because if he's doing it, maybe I can too, maybe we can too. So first, the pastor preaches what Peter preaches. Second, if we want a pastor who builds trust, we choose a pastor who pastors the people in front of him. First Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. A faithful pastor is a pastor to real people, not hypothetical people. Um, a pastor builds trust when he pastors those who are actually among him, right? When he knows those people, understands them, when he accepts these people as his people, as his flock. Um, pastors should beware wishing for a different group of people to pastor. Um, begrudging their church for not being like other churches. A pastor should repent when he grumbles against this city or this generation or whatever it might be. This is who God has placed in front of him. These are the people to pastor. It's important too that pastors don't pastor abstract people. Uh, A few years back, I went to my grandmother's church in rural Florida. I'm a very small First Baptist church, tiny town, The average age in the church had to be 70. Um, And that night, I went on Sunday morning. They're doing the announcements and things. And that night, the pastor was offering a sermon against marijuana. And I was baffled (laughs) by that, right? My grandmother and her, her friends weren't smoking marijuana. They weren't tempted by smoking marijuana. And they didn't know anybody who smokes marijuana. I... I don't know how this was helpful to Lucille's discipleship. Um... And it would probably be helpful for yours, honestly, right? We live in San Francisco, it'd be fine. But not my 88-year-old grandmother. And it was just, it was just wild to me. It is so important for me to preach and teach and lead and pastor you, 
right? And sometimes we can spend so much time online or in other spaces, and so we, we, we forget who is actually in front of us. I need to pastor you and not me so that I'm just bringing up the things that I care about that are, that are central to me, my hobby horses. I am not called to pastor the American church. I am not called to pastor the San Franciscan church. I am called to pastor you. Adam is called to pastor you. And of course, because we live in a global city, pastoring often requires that we stay connected to the news and check Twitter and hit occasional hot topics, those things. But that's only because, or if, those are real questions you face in your regular life, in your day-to-day, among peers and at work, in um, member interviews. When people join the church, I've added a, a new question to where it's just like, what do you want from your, what do you want help from over the next six months, the next year? Like if, if you could say, and we, we can't know exactly what we do, but like if you wanted help from your pastor, from your church, like what would you want? Because, because I want to know what you need, what you want, and not what I think you need. Even even when it comes to big topics, more than knowing the world, I need to know you. I need to hear from you. I need to love you. I need to pastor, shepherd the flock of God among me, among us. And this builds trust when you believe that I am here for you, the real you, not for others, and also not for me. And not for me relates to Peter's third piece of advice to build trust Choose a pastor who consistently aims to give and not take. That that's his posture towards the church. He gives and doesn't take. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. These verses highlight what health looks like in a relationship between pastors and a congregation. A phrase from CJ I use frequently for all kinds of relationships is that healthy relationships should be marked by giving and receiving, not never taking and never being taken from. And I think this is true for all relationships. It's a great phrase that healthy relationships are marked by giving and receiving, never taking and never being taken from. And a pastor and their congregation should have such a healthy relationship. A pastor should serve willingly and eagerly. It's marked by giving and receiving. Shepherding should not be something that is taken from him. Pastors should not serve out of compulsion. And he must never take from the sheep, pursuing shameful gain. So let's break these down. First, pastors must not lead for shameful gain. Pastors must not use their churches to serve their own idols, whether they be comfort, control, performance, or prestige. Pastors who lead for shameful gain objectify their congregation, seeing them as stepping stones to something else. Is not this what a pastor means when he talks about his platform? And maybe you don't, maybe you're not in that uh, conversation, but I, I am in the pastor world. And so you'll have pastors who talk about their churches as a platform. 
Platforms are literally meant to be stepped on. Your church is not a platform. It should not be. You cannot trust someone who wants to step on you for something else. You cannot trust a pastor who pastors while having his eyes set on greater glories. Maybe he's building trust, but he's building trust in himself for himself. That, and that's just it. Faithful pastors are not called to build trust for themselves. So it is so important that we call trustworthy pastors, but not so that we can trust them, but so that we can trust Jesus. The trust a pastor gains is not meant to build his resume, to leverage his position and power and safety. It is meant to be spent for others. I serve in order to increase trust, not in myself, but in the church and in Christ. In you, with your neighbors and coworkers and family and friends, when you bring someone here on Sunday, I don't want them to trust me more. I want them to trust you more. When you seek counseling from me, I don't want you to trust me more. I want you to trust Christ more. My ministry is meant to increase trust in the gospel, in the Bible, in Jesus, and in God. And honestly, that can be a challenge in pastoring. It's humbling. Spending hours and months and years building trust that is not spent for yourself. Um, trust is hard to build. It's hard to keep. It takes a lot of work, a lot of self-denial and self-control. And all that work is not for my benefit. I don't get to cash in one day on that because the trust I build is not meant to be spent on me. It's meant to be spent on Christ. And so I want people to go away and not remember me, but to remember Jesus. Faithful pastors give and never take. Faithful pastors give so that they aren't taken from. It can be easy in a relationship, in any relationship, but to feel taken from as a pastor, to sort of feel bossed around by a schedule and expectations and those sorts of things, um, so that you're leading from a place of compulsion and not willingness. Um, and um, that can lead to bitterness. And it can lead to a strong temptation to fight back being taken from by taking. That's how unhealthy relationships get whether they're this, this relationship, or marriages, or whatever. So once you feel taken from, then you start to take, and then it gets into this like vicious cycle, right? And so it's so important in those moments to recenter yourself in Christ and decide willingly, freely, I am going to give of myself to this person. I have agency and control in this, and I am choosing to give. They are not taking from me. I am giving to them as God has given himself to me. That is the posture of a pastor. It's essential that a pastor's service to the church be a gift. That is the terms of the relationship. There are no strings attached in pastoring. You do not have to stay here for a certain number of years, right? You do not have to give or serve a certain amount or in a certain way. That is guilt and shame, and it has no place in the church. It has no place in our relationship. No one should feel guilt and shame for me. 
Of course, we should all give back in some manner because that's a healthy relationship, right? But it has to be free. It has to be free in order to be giving, right? Giving and receiving. Taking and being taken from is the way of the world. It's the way of contracts and let's make a deal and I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And that is not the way of Christ. That, should, that has no place in the church. It's not the way of trustworthy pastors. Trustworthy pastors don't give and don't take. It is not my role to make anyone give anything because making you give is not giving, right? That's taking. In 1 Peter 5.3, I am told not to be domineering over those in my charge, but an example to the flock. Um, it's hard to overstate how remarkable this is in the first century um, and now, but in the first century, which was a honor-shame culture, like to have a position of power, you were entitled and expected to domineer over those beneath you. That was, that was the way of the world. But Christianity lands then and now, and it is a religion that is marked by freedom and power. Freedom and power. Literally, we believe that every single person upon placing their faith in Christ, becomes united to Christ by the Holy Spirit and filled with the power of the resurrection. Every person. And that's why earlier in 1 Peter, the apostle addresses the whole church as the temple of God, men and women, rich and poor, young and old, elder or not. 1 Peter 2, 4, as you church come to him, you, he's talking about all of us, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verses 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. With such a remarkable charge given to literally everyone in the church, leadership doesn't need a heavy hand, right? Because everybody has the Holy Spirit. Notice how in these verses, Peter doesn't single out elders, right? No one, nowhere does he indicate that only mature Christians are qualified to be royal priesthood and holy nation. Every member of the church is given these titles. Every member of the church is charged with the awesome task of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night. Every member is called to follow the example of Christ, obeying God at great cost. And this obedience from everyone leads to honor and glory. The egalitarian nature of the gospel and the church should have a limited effect on the authority of elders and deacons. Certainly, God has built the church in such a way that her gifts flourish best with leadership, and that's just kind of how human beings work. Like, leadership is a good thing. But I think it's important to name that Peter only spends four verses in a very long letter addressing elders. Right? That means elders are important enough to name and encourage. They're very important, but they're not all important. Most of the time is spent addressing the entire church. The church is the people. 
Elders merely shepherd. They protect, nurture, feed, lead. But sheep do the sheeping. The sheep are important. The flock are what's important, not the shepherd. A shepherd which domineers is not a trustworthy shepherd. Somehow he thinks the Spirit of God primarily works through him, but that is not a Christian view, right? Whatever it is that makes him think that, it is not the Holy Spirit that makes him think that. That again, thinks that he should step on people's faces and be a pla- use the church as a platform. Like that is not a scriptural view. A shepherd that is trustworthy sees himself as mostly a sheep, which is why the bulk of his leadership is living by example. That's what he's called to do. I want to wrap up, and I hope you can already see how good a fit Adam is for this role at Citizens, uh, to be your pastor, to be my pastor. Uh, He is eminently trustworthy. He preaches Christ, uh, both his suffering and his coming glory. He follows Christ, willing to obey even when it hurts. We have seen that on display in the past year. Adam is learning to shepherd the people among him and not some abstract or hypothetical people. Like he loves you. He speaks affectionately about you. He loves you and not the idea of you. Adam gives and doesn't take. He leads by example and is not domineering. He is trustworthy. And I'm super grateful for his faithfulness to citizens. With Rob moving to Kentucky, I am very aware, though, that Adam and I need additional pastors. Um, Please pray for God to raise up additional pastors at Citizens, and um, you should ask yourself, um, should I pursue leadership at Citizens? I'm thankful for the deacons, thankful for their care. Um, It... uh, makes, I feel super supported by them, and I'm really grateful, um, but, but we need more of that. Um, the Bible teaches that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Um, a cord of two strands, two strands is more easily broken, and so three is really helpful. Um, at the same time, though, I realize that the role I've described for the past, like, 25 minutes isn't all that attractive on the face of it, uh, <laughs> right? You're going to work really hard and build and maintain trust, and then you're going to give all that trust away. Um, It is hard. Um, It is, yeah, a a unique, wild calling to be a pastor in San Francisco in 2022. Uh, Last month, Christianity Today ran an article about burnout among American pastors. Um, When it came in the mail, I wept. The cover just, like, floored me. Um, it, like, captures my like, biggest fear is to just have nothing left. Um, and the article uh, was based on a recent report entitled, The Pastors Aren't All Right, 38% Consider Leaving Ministry. And it begins, Our pulpits are full of empty preachers. Tens of thousands of pastors want to quit but haven't. What has that done to them? 
Um, it's been a hard few years for everyone. Um, and I have many friends who have left the ministry in the last like three years. Um, and that's been just like particularly hard to, you know, I went to seminary 15 years ago. And so by now, you know, with the exit rate of pastors already, but I just, I just know a ton of friends um, who are no longer pastors. They've like stepped out of the ministry, uh, which is just heartbreaking because we need more, not less. Um, and I, um, to be clear, like don't want to leave and don't plan to leave. There's no other job that I want uh, than pastoring in San Francisco. It is um, infuriating at times, but it is delightful to me. Um, and I hope to do it for decades. But at the same time, you can't go on very long looking like this picture. Like, it's just not something that you can do. And so what do we do? What do I do? What does Adam do when he inevitably looks like this also? When you look like this, um, because uh, again, you are full of the Spirit. I'm not the only one um, doing ministry. Like, and so there are times where you walk through the city and you feel spent. 1 Peter 5, 4 finishes his charge to elders with a promise. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And there are two encouragements to be taken from this verse in closing, first, the crown from Jesus. Um, this verse is what I live for. Um, I've said uh, many times that the one thing I want from Christ when I get to heaven is a hug that I can't wait for. That's what I'm looking forward to the most, a hug. Um, but I'm also going to be pretty stoked about this unfading crown. It's going to be pretty sweet. Um, Maggie, too. Um, I may be complimentary, but she's getting a crown um, somehow. Uh, there's going to be a crown for her. Um, for real, though, like, it's hard to imagine being crowned by Jesus. It's going to be awesome, and it's going to be completely worth any sacrifices that I make. Because those sacrifices will fade. They're temporary. This crown will never fade. Millions of years later, this crown will still be going. All the trust spent for others, all the giving of oneself will come back to reward the trustworthy pastor in the end. That is why, apart from being infuriated at abusive pastors, we should also be a little sad because they have chosen the porridge. What Esau's like, he like traded his birthright. He traded it away. And so we should be sad for them and motivated to not trade away. This should make every person in here desire Christian leadership. Every man in here desire Christian eldership. It's not easy, but the chief shepherd will make it worth your while. And there's the second encouragement. According to 1 Peter 5, 4, I am never the only shepherd in the room. There is a chief shepherd. It's not a job I do by myself. It's not a job Adam and I do by ourselves. We have a cord of three strands in Christ. We serve a chief shepherd who shepherds through us. 
At the beginning of the passage, Peter called the elders of the church to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And this is a direct allusion to what he said earlier about Jesus in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the overseer. No one's salvation depends on me. No one's safety depends on me. One of my favorite uh, books on pastoring is called Imperfect Pastor, embracing the imperfection that is me and highlights the perfection of Jesus. I am just a marker, a conduit, an embodiment of his faithful shepherding. And so it's really a win-win for me, right? What on first glance can look like all the work and none of the credit actually is all the credit and none of the work. That's the job that I have. All the credit, but none of the work. Because Jesus has got it. He's got you, he's got me. And in that case, pastoring is a pretty great gig. Thanks for letting me and Adam be your pastors. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful that you are the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We are thankful uh, that you have given the Holy Spirit to every member here, that there is great power and freedom in this place. There is love and faith and hope there is resurrection, there is skill, there is experience, there is knowledge. It's here in all of us. We recognize, though, that for all of us to flourish and to really live into our freedom and power in Christ— you appoint leaders. Father, forgive the church for appointing untrustworthy leaders over the last however many decades. And this has always been a problem, wolves in the church, Old Testament, New Testament, they've always been there. Uh, but Father, please protect us from appointing untrustworthy leaders. Keep me trustworthy. Keep me free from sin. Keep me free from taking. Help me to be a pastor who gives. Um, and get all of us, carry all of us safely through to the glory revealed at the end of time when we will receive an unfading crown. We thank you. We love you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.